0: definition of sales enablement has changed. What are the components of sales enablement has changed as recently as the last year, right? And so there are many people who they need one piece of it, they don't need another piece of it. And so what we've seen is, you know, just now it's starting to sort of cross the chasm. But even in, you know, recent years, there are people like, this is, we really think it's a great idea. We think we're going to be ready for it, but we've decided not to do it until next year. It's kind of like the story you told earlier, right? Sometimes the decision despite the best efforts, some percentage of those people aren't going to close and the deal is not going to happen. It's not a function per se of a bad experience, although certainly in many cases it is.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Mark Magnaca. Mark is the president and co-founder of Allegro, which is the enterprise video knowledge platform. And in our conversation today, we're talking about topics related to his new book, the book he co-authored, that's titled Mastering Virtual Selling Orchestrating Sales Success. So we start off with a good definition of virtual selling from the book. Mark says being a great virtual seller means understanding a prospect's mindset when you're not meeting with him or her in person. And the reason I like that, because I think that's always been the case in sales. That's where the difference is made in terms of it's not just what you do when you're in front of the buyer, but as Mark and I dig into in our conversation, it's what you think about, plan, and do when you're not in front of the buyer that differentiates you and makes the difference. As Mark writes in his book, Virtual Selling is learning how to become a maestro, a master of orchestrating all the moving parts in the buying process to achieve the outcome what you want. And we dig into how you can become that maestro and much, much more. Now, before we get to Mark, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review give us your feedback about how we're doing. So, thank you. All right, let's jump into it. So, of the three imperatives that you have for for the sellers have these days, we talked about building rapport. And then, the second one was understanding and solving customer problems. So, this one has, is near and dear to my, my heart. Um, so, you wrote that the ability to understand the buyer's problem is fundamental to mastery. And you talk, it's easy to, it's, it's, <laughs> I like this part. You said it's easy to think you know what is most important to a buyer from a first impression or a snippet of a conversation, which I think is the problem, is that, that sellers operate on assumptions. I agree. Yeah, no, no question about that. I mean, I think that I believe that there's this gap that exists between knowing something and understanding it. And this is, this is a, a chasm that sellers fall into all the time with sort of the overly scripted questions and playbooks is that they don't oftentimes cross that, that chasm. And as a result, they really can't help the customer solve the problems because they don't really understand what they are.
0: Yeah, I would I would tell you, Andy, that the interesting thing that's relevant to what you're describing here is that um, this this whole notion of listening is it's just critical. And you know what's really changed, from my perspective, is that especially coming out of the pandemic, is a realization that we don't need a lot of the tools and techniques of the past. If you think about what a, in many ways, uh, so Andy, if we pick it up with your question around understanding the, the buyer's problem and really thinking about what's important to a customer. You know, one of the things that we're seeing that the pandemic has really helped accelerate is when you can use a tool like conversation intelligence to assess how much you're talking versus how much you're listening, it's incredibly revealing. You know, I think for so many people with a, I'll call it a traditional sales personality that has some level of extroversion, Um it's easy to be almost in a flow state when you're talking, right? A lot of us, myself included, uh, actually think best when we're talking. So there's other people, as you know, who conceptualize, and they think very much internally. And then only when they've collected all their thoughts, do they they say what they're going to say. And there's another group of us who's not like that. And so one of the things
1: that, uh, I think Zoom. best in the shower, by the way. So, so do I. I
0: literally get I if I had a, I I heard Lionel Richie say the same thing, by the way, that the lyrics come to him in the shower
1: more often yeah. than not, right? Well, I used to, I used to have a pad in my shower where these you, know, <laughs> you can write on. Um, I didn't use it as much as I thought, but yeah, I'm I'm always very conscious of okay, make sure you, you know, remember this.
0: You know how many times I've forgotten? Yeah, I've had three things in my head. You know, I'm drying off. I'm like, okay, I got to go write those down. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, So, I mean, I, I think one of the thing, the big dynamics. In fact, I just was uh, part of a roundtable with a McKinsey consultant who was covering some research on this topic, and what he said was the whole model of selling that was really buyer versus seller. There was all of this tension. If you think about you know, the, the challenger notion, and we've got to create this, this, uh, dynamic, we're going to challenge you. We're going to, we're going to do all of these different things to sort of, in a sense, create, uh, uncomfortable energy between us that we can then relieve at some point, almost mm. like a comedian sets up a joke, right? Well, yes. w- what we're realizing now is when someone's done 60 or 70% of the research before now they have a f- overall framework in many cases. And, you know, Forrester and so many are saying like, that's what they're doing. Two thirds, Uh, You know, 60 to 70% of research is happening before they even get on the phone with you or they get onto a Zoom call. So you're not dealing with somebody that those techniques, which served a purpose in their time, I think in in some ways they're an anachronism now.
1: Oh, I mean, I would argue they never had a place and they were always an anachronism. But yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, I mean, I
0: think if you, if you look back, you recognize that, um, you know, it, taken to the extreme, there was sort of the aluminum uh, siding, like in the movie Tin Men. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There, was, mm-hmm. there was these parodies of that the kind of the high-pressure uh, model. But what I've, what I've realized, at least in my own development over this period of time, is that um, that's just not how people want to buy, myself included. And so I've come to the conclusion, if I don't want to buy that way, pretty good chance that you don't either. So I need to adapt my approach accordingly. And I know at a Lego anyway, a big part of our whole model is absolutely operating under the premise that we're here to help you make a better buying decision. And quite frankly, if based on your needs, a better buying decision is to don't buy us, we'd we'd literally rather uh, give you a fond farewell and point you in the direction we think could benefit you, Mm -hmm. knowing that it's a small world. And at some point, um, you may end up coming back to us as your needs change.
1: Yeah, well, I think this speaks to sort of you talked about the various (laughs) sales religions that have existed, these, you know, methodologies, Sandler, whatever. And I think it's always been the shortcoming of those, as well as others, not to call them out specifically, is in the way they're presented, is that, you know, part of the reason buyers have these opinions of sellers as, you know, pushy and, you know, clueless and uninformed and so on and so forth, is that that's sort of the way we create sellers. That was true. <laughs> no, no, it's, and, no oh, I, I, it was no question. It was true. I don't put it in the past tense. I think that's happening. And I think it's perhaps worse than it's been. As someone who's been through several generations of sellers, uh, it's certainly no better. And I think in some respects, it's, it's worse. As, so, you know, we basically teach sellers that, hey, your job, if you were to ask most sellers, and I do this when I talk in public. What's, what's your job as a salesperson? And invariably, the answer comes down to something that's one variety of, well, my job is to persuade someone to buy my product. Mm-hmm. And which I think is not their job. I think my job and your job as a seller is to listen, to understand what's most important to the buyer, and then help them get that. And if you have one perspective, you think it's persuasion-based, you're going to undertake a certain set of actions and behaviors. That result in this what I call selling out. Whereas, if you think your job is to listen and understand what's most important to this other person and, and help them get it, then you're going to act in a completely different way.
0: I love it, and and I have to tell you, Andy. I know we just touched on it earlier, but that is the most important question. I, I discovered that question when I was 23 years old, and it's been one of the most important questions um, in my entire career. Yeah, that one question, and then you know, there's there's a couple even. Uh, uh, separate layers to it, right, so there's what's most important to you when you blank and then mm-hmm. and then it's and then you know depending upon the answer to that question there's what has to happen for you to know that right so mm-hmm. I used to do this um, in the investment business before I was in the software business, and I would ask people what's most important you would make uh, when you make an investment decision? Pause and I would be quiet, and they would talk, and they would say something like safety, the rate of return you know they would they would mm-hmm. give me an answer, and then I would say, well. Right. What has to happen for you to know that you've gotten a, a good return, as you put it? Well, I have to earn 20% of my money. Well, okay. Now, now I know what I'm dealing with. Then I say to him, my last question, Andy, along that 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 uh, trifecta was, um, have you had an experience in the past when you've worked with somebody that you've been happy with? Mm. And you know that was a really powerful question because when people it's say, no, powerful. I think they're all, they're all jerks. <laughs> okay. And I would tell him, what are the odds that I come along now? And um, you've been doing this a long time. And all of a sudden, it's it's totally different, right? And so then it's a little bit of a strip line. And, and this goes back to where there's some value to the techniques. You know, there's there's like, I, I liken it to magic in the sense that there, there are skills that you can practice that evoke certain parts of the process, especially for people who are sort of naturally rec- recalcitrant. And you have to remember also that there's different people at different, uh, in different psychological states in the moving parade of life that, at least in, in my experience on this, um, if, if there's not some situational prompter, all things being equal, something like 50% of people will do nothing, right? Even if they've told you it's important. So that's why I, I think it's a one-two punch, and I will tell you that from my perspective, what we've done better, at least at, at, I can only speak for my own company, but what we've right. done better than what we've done in the past is my team does its homework on you before they call you. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, if they called you up and they didn't know that you were an author and they didn't know that you have a podcast and we listened to that call, there's a problem.
1: There's, well, yeah. there's a problem. Well, yeah. And that's <laughs> shocking how many times that happens. I um, bet, I bet it, is. it I happens mean, to I, me too. I, I, I've said before in the show, it's yeah, I I get people cold outreach to me saying, We've looked at your profile. We think you should have a podcast. (laughs) Andy, I've had had it from my direct competitor,
0: literally one of my direct competitors. Their SDR outreach to me was, Have you considered a sales enablement platform? Yeah, you know, we had some fun with that one sending it
1: around because I'm like, dude, I mean, come on. <laughs> I, w- I would have called his boss if I were you, just out of professional courtesy, just to say, hey. Though they don't always respond well when you do that. I've done that <laughs> with people. Um, but I mean it's for me, it's it's it, we just people have to have the right perspective on what they're doing and what their job is. And it, to me, this is everything flows from there, right? If if we see Uh, You know, low win rates and high no decision rates, and so on. It flows back to the experience of the buyer with the seller, right? Right. There's no question about that. And so, and I, you know, I asked the question of of managers. So, are you measuring the buyer experience with your sellers? Uh, No. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, what are you measuring? Oh, and how many calls they make. Yeah. Well, yeah. We, sure. You get a sense of it when you're listening to recorded calls with a conversational intelligence system. But, but are you asking the question? Are you finding yep. a way to measure and to compare, even if it's a soft measure, just to be able to compare it to what it was a month ago or two months ago or a year ago? Yep. Because this fundamentally drives a decision. I, I absolutely
0: agree with that. And, you know, there are certain airlines, one I, I'm partial to is JetBlue. Me too. And, you know, they, and so they're just, so am I. And so they are really good. Um, I think at doing that and I've had, you know, I fly on them a lot, things have happened and you know, I've called and they've been really, really good about, um, making me feel like they want me to have a good experience. And if I didn't, then they want to help make it right. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, we had one time a thing happened on the plane and it wasn't the flight attendant's fault. It was just, it's just one of those things. And, uh, She just came over to my wife and she said, you know what, I can't do anything about the fact that your TVs aren't working. She's Mm -hmm. like, I know it's part of the JetBlue experience. She's like, I wish I could do something, but I tell you what, I brought you each one of these mini bottles of champagne. Maybe you could just enjoy a drink on me. And it was like, you know, my my wife and I drank the champagne. It was only like an hour left in the flight. It was like, that's all we needed. And it it turned out to be a great experience. Not every airline, as you know, does that. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah. JetBlue Yes. In person, they do a great job. Their website sucks horribly. It crashes a lot, right? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, But, yeah, in person, they do a great job. Um,
0: so, so, Andy, can I just go back one thing, though, because I'm really sure. interested uh, just to go one step, double-click on this one. I know how I use the question, what's most important. Can you say a little bit more about what, what was the origin of you starting to use that, and, and um, how do you recommend people use
1: it? Because I'm personally interested. Well, the origin was that <laughs> early in my career— about five hundred years ago um, i I was selling computer systems pretty good sized computer systems to to construction industry okay and we had this one deal was a big deal in today's dollars you know well over a million dollars uh, it's for Big system, all this, basically an accounting system, job cost accounting, and so on for construction industry. Yeah. So every general ledger module, module plus cost accounting they were wanted to do. Uh, it was in their, you know, RFI, RFQ, and and uh, yeah, we did these extensive demos on multiple occasions of all the modules. Then, I don't know, three, six months after the system was been installed and they're using it as Calling on the CEO, and I said, um, <laughs> "You're only using invoicing." He goes, "Oh yeah, that's how we're paying for the whole thing." I said, "You son of a bitch! Maybe <laughs> we went through, you <laughs> know, twenty rounds of demos and all these applications." Just he said, "Yeah, well, you could have asked." Wow, <laughs> right? And it, it's been true every single opportunity I've worked on throughout my career, whether it's a, you know. Hundred thousand dollar system or hundred million dollar system that I've sold. There's always one thing that's more important than all the others. Yep. And it's your job to find out what those are and what that is because that's how you're going to win the deal. Yeah. And but. it's just it's been reliable. So for me, it's like oh, I started being sensitized to it really early on because yeah. And then as I look back. After you know, I got even more experience, it's like, yeah, every single time there's always one thing.
0: So, in a sense, if you, if you boil down what you just said, it's almost like the 80 20 principle inherent in a question because by asking people, it forces them, in a sense, to synthesize and, and answer the question because hmm? things are not equally important. And the other modules that you had, just like in our software, may not be important to you. I know, you know, there's, there's it's like, what's most important to me in Microsoft Word? Spell check. Right there's a lot of other things that are in the, I don't actually right. care about.
1: Yeah, what I was oftentimes throughout my career dealing and selling systems that, you know, the, the customer and buyer would look at, you know, everybody in the market, and they would win eventually winnow it down to the final two, and they'd do a big RFP right for the yep. final two. And I remember this one time, it was with a company, this huge cruise line in Asia, and this was going to be the first high speed internet. <laughs> to this was a few years ago, mm-hmm. to cruise ships that they could have in the room, and as well as voice IP and so on, and the compliance matrix that was in the RFQ and RFP was huge, hundreds of line items, <laughs> and and we were yeah a startup basically a little mature startup but competing against huge system integrators, and I looked at this compliance matrix and and turned to the seller. On my team, I said, "These are not all equally weighted." I said, "Which one's the most important to this company?" And he didn't know, but we, he found out to his credit. Is he told that, you is that yeah, he asked the CEO of the company, and he didn't really care about you know internet browsing in the staterooms or voiceover P. He wanted to make sure that the the link from the ship. To his office, that gave him the real-time take on the onboard casinos, never went down. Wow, that's all he cared about. Everything else was nice. This was important, and so we sh- we basically started ignoring most everything in the compliance matrix in our final proposal and focused just on that. You know, eighty percent of the proposal was about how we'd make sure that never happened. They never had access to that information, and we won the deal.
0: this is a very cool story, and and it you know I. In my in my last book, uh, Andy, I did, the reason I was asking about this, it's a topic of great interest to me. I actually called what you just described the so what benefit. And the book was called So What. And mm-hmm. and so the so what benefit was literally what you just said. It was the one thing that you could fill in the blank with this sentence. All I really care about is dot dot dot. And and if they could answer that question, all they really all mm-hmm. I really care about is a direct line from the shrew ship to the yeah. shore so that I can write. And and it's true with cars. It's true. And so, so yeah. many of us, we get distracted like a bull by the matador. You know, red, red flags going all these different ways, and we're running around instead of realizing, wait a minute, what's most important? So, I, I love the phrase. I want to ask you one other thing, because uh, I love well, the title. And just,
1: it, yeah, and just before you, before you go on, is you have to remember as a seller, you not have to sell everything, <laughs> right? Yeah. This is the default. The position is, well, I've got all these great features. Let me sell them. It's like, no. Find out what's most important to the buyer, then work on that. Anyway, go ahead. I never thought of the term "sellout" until I saw the
0: cover of your book, and I never oh. thought about the pejorative element that the word you know "selling" has its own baggage. But yeah. to be a sellout is like a—it's a much heavier indictment, right? If that, <laughs> if that guy's a sellout, right? What do you know? What's the origin of that? Why do we why do we call it that?
1: You know. I don't know people selling out as an expression uh I should look that up. I'm sure somebody else will ask it i'll have to I'll have to learn that uh but it's it was just I was just telling somebody of the stories is how the title originated for the book is is I had <laughs> written the book and just sort of down to the final chapters uh, sort of summarizing everything and and i I wasn't happy with the title I had uh and my editor wasn't happy with the title I had, and she she suggested it. Really? <laughs> yeah, she said, well, huh, well, having read all this, it's like, how about sell without selling out? <laughs> it's like, oh, that's it. <laughs> that's it's, no, it. it's got a
0: wonderful, provocative <laughs> element to it,
1: right? Right. And uh, yeah, I'm forever indebted to her because she yeah. She could see the forest for the trees at that point, where I was just too too deeply into it. Yeah, that's um, great. But it's along the lines of what we were just talking about. Is, is it's how we it's how we socialize sellers, and it's you know, point I make in the book is the behaviors that that we don't like, that buyers don't like, and the ones that sellers don't like to to take. Those are learned behaviors mm. that the the qualities i talk about in my book of connection curiosity understanding and generosity those are innate behaviors yeah. and yeah this is the way people people don't come into sales being salesy they come into sales being humans so let's 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 talk about how we can emphasize the human aspect of it to help them understand what's most important to the buyers and help them get it so connection curiosity Understanding yep. and generosity. Understanding and generosity. Got it.
0: Well, and it's interesting if you play that out. If you think about if uh, a family member of yours was buying, whether it's a computer or they're buying a car, like, and you were selling that thing, the way that you would approach it would be, well, what do I know about them? Um, how, you know, how do I want them to feel? And so we mm-hmm. all know how to do it. It's just that sometimes I think in a quota-based environment, there's this sense of like, that's how I'm supposed to behave most of the time, but I'm up against quota right now. And and for this (laughs) month, I got to drop it.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, that's, and that's why change really needs to start at the top. Yeah. Because, you know, we were all young people in sales at one point or another. And, and yeah, we're put into the spot of having to act in a way that, A, we didn't like at all. And B, that was going to trash our relationship with the buyer. And, you know, the one I allude to early in the book is, in one-sentence story, is I had a client that had promised a big order before the year-end. We didn't need it. You know, technically, we didn't need it before year-end, but obviously, yeah, you know, my boss wanted it for his bonus. I was already—the right. guy had said he was going to send us the order before he took Christmas break, didn't come across. I had to call the guy at home on Christmas Eve, in the, midst of, <laughs> in the midst of opening presents, ask them to fax an order to us. And this is not unusual. This happens all the time. Yeah. You know, we, we tell the buyer, look, we're here to help until it gets to the last week of the month or last week of the quarter, and then it's like, what can we do to get you in this car today? In essence, right? And then, yeah, what do you do? Well, they might still buy from you, but from that point forward, the relationship's different. Yeah, it's a great point. And this happens repeatedly. So if we want things to change, it's like, yeah, I ask as as in a roundtable discussion with a bunch of sales leaders and they're talking about spiffs and they're talking about, you know, last week of the month. I said, well, let me ask you the question. Have you ever done an ROI calculation on giving that 10% discount in the last week of the month in order to get the order in that you're going to get the next week anyway? Uh no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How about a return on investment on the spiff you gave your seller to close that order that last week of the month? Ever done an ROI yeah. calculation on that? Mm, no. <laughs> it's like, okay, let's just give margin points away for nothing. Right. This is what
0: happens when you go to Stanford, Andy. This is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know you just know things,
1: right? <laughs> I don't think that's nothing to do with what I learned there, but it's just stuff just doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make, yeah, we know it doesn't make sense and it doesn't make sense anymore. And, you you know, you look at the SaaS industry with, you know, what I consider really low win rates in general that are acceptable to most SaaS companies, sort of, you know, 20 to 25%. And you say, well, that's being driven by the experience of the buyers with your sellers. So what are we going to do different? Right, it's, yeah. it's there. It's the buyer's referendum on you, as I like to tell sellers. It's the buyer's referendum on you, and it's personal. I mean, it doesn't mean you're a bad person, but it's you yeah, know, They're making their judgment on the <laughs> on you. All right. We we also track though a no decision.
0: Right. Because sure. the, one of the things that, that, you know, it, with numbers that low, one of the things you have to realize is that in some markets and using sales enablement as a perfect example, the definition of sales enablement has changed. What are the components of sales enablement mm-hmm. has changed as recently as the last year. Right. right. And so there are many people who they need one piece of it. They don't need another piece of it. And, um, and so what we've seen is, you know, just now it's starting to sort of cross the chasm, but even in, you know, recent years there are people like this is, we really think it's a great idea we think we're going to be ready for it but we've decided not to do it until next year you know and and so that becomes a yeah it's it's kind of like the story you told earlier right sometimes um so sometimes the decision and again you know maybe it's not enough discovery but uh sometimes despite the best efforts some percentage of those people aren't going to close and the deal is not going to happen and it's uh, it's not a function per se of a bad experience although certainly in many cases it is
1: yeah Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean there's always always exceptions to every rule, right? But it's it's for me, you know, no decisions in my experience have been is is they boil down to unanswered questions. Right? If you, if you look at the way people uh make decisions and adopt change, they have stages and that they go through. And and I remember reading a research paper about this pretty early in my sales career. And and what found is that people won't move from one stage to the next. And so the paper is actually about adopting change, right? Which buying fundamentally is, right? Adopting change. That they won't make, mm-hmm. move from one stage to the next of making the decision about adopting a change if they have unanswered questions. Mm. And so, okay. <laughs> you know, for me, and you, through my own experience, or found this out as, yeah, when deals stall, deals go quiet, or you get to a point and there's no decision, yeah, it's because we screwed up somewhere in discovery. We didn't really learn what was most important to them. We didn't, you know, we can sort of take it from there because everything sort of cascades off that. If you don't know that, yeah, what are you selling? Well, it's not aligned with what their, their vision is, what they need to achieve to be successful with this investment. So you can
0: see, I'm going to tell you that that's been my biggest takeaway. So I know that it was, I, I got that out of this podcast that, that if people listen to nothing else, but that one question, uh, it's worth, it's worth the time because <laughs> that question, um, I, you know, what's interesting about it and he's I, I do it myself and I've shared it with lots of people. We have many new people. Uh, I'm realizing now I haven't shared it with, but the, the simple reality is, um, if you just knew that, it can go a long way to solving all the problems that we've just, we've covered here. So it's it's
1: uh, thanks for sharing that. And well, thank uh, you. But it, it also it gets back to something you had talked about too, which is you know how important listening is, and, and it's it's hard for people, right? It's you know I get into my book the difference between hearing and listening is it like everything else you do in sales, you have to be intentional about listening. Is you have. To, Instead of listening to respond, which is sort of the default motion that many sellers use, is you have to listen to understand. And yeah, I love this, this great um quote <clears throat> having the book from Clayton Christensen, who said, questions are the places in your mind where answers fit. If you haven't asked the question, the answer is nowhere to go. It's good. And yeah, you have to, you gotta keep listening to ask great questions. You gotta listen. What do they want to hear next? What's the follow-up question? I mean, that's that's a, a big gap, is asking great follow-up questions. So you really dig deeper, and then listen some more. And that's why I, I talk about this chasm between under, knowing and understanding, is that a rep can do a, a reasonably good job of asking the questions they typically ask of buyers and gathering that information, but then what do you understand about the buyer? Yeah. Oh, it's great, Andy. I know
0: we're coming up. Um, I've got a, a quarter of a, call. Oh, sure. a quarter okay. of that I got to jump on. So uh, well, it's been fun. What, what can we do to? Re- yeah, that's. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here. We'll
1: have to have to do it again because uh, people don't know who are listening to this, but we've done this in two parts. So uh, hopefully the parts fit together seamlessly. But uh, yeah, we'll have you back and we'll have extend the conversation.
0: That sounds great, Andy. It's a real pleasure, and wishing all the best for a great holiday.
1: Well, you too. And so, if people want to learn more about your book, because that's We're talking about Mastering Virtual Selling, Orchestrating Sales Success. Uh, as I said, with a f- forward by our friend Frank Sespedes, uh, where can they find that?
0: Yeah, I would encourage them to go to masteringvirtualselling.com. We've got um, not only the information on the book there, but also an arsenal. Um, and the arsenal is a concept that we describe in the book that covers all kinds of useful resources to help you on the journey towards mastery. Excellent. So. MasteringVirtualSelling.com. It's also available on Amazon and all
1: the other All the places, places you normally buy. All right. Well, Mark, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Mark Magnaca, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or every listen podcast. Certainly appreciate your help with that. And we also thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.